Well done, Simon. I remember the first time I went up front to share, and I will say that it's uh, it can be quite daunting to see all the pairs of eyes that are looking at the person up front, um, but it's nice to do prayer because most people have their eyes closed. So anyway, well done, Simon. Um, Jinha and I have been preaching this series entitled Exploring God's Mission uh, over the past month or so. Um, we've looked at exploring God's mission through creation, uh, exploring God's mission through judgment, family, nations, and today we're covering God's, exploring God's mission as a way of life. Now, as I was thinking about the series, I realized that I haven't actually given a proper overview to the series that we've kind of been embarking on. We just kind of got into it and launched through the series. And so now that we're in the sixth installment, um, I'm just going to present to you an introduction and an overview of the series. Arthur Glasser says, the whole Bible is a missionary book. It's a revelation of God's purpose and action. And this statement is very significant because we often read scripture for our needs and our purposes. If we need wisdom, guidance, blessing or intervention, we as Christians are encouraged to turn to Scripture. And I think the Bible is certainly good for that. But in this series, we want to emphasize that the Bible is first and foremost a book that reveals God's mission. If we primarily seek the Bible for our own interests and our own purposes, there's a good chance that we'll misunderstand God, misrepresent God, and we can even miss out on God's intention for our lives. And this is why Jinha and I are journeying through the Bible, highlighting God's mission through Scripture. So today I want to talk about God's mission as a way of life. My dad was born in 1948, just after World War II. After 35 years of uh, Japanese occupation, the country was divided. The northern part of Korea... Um, created an, al uh, an alliance with the USSR and China, and the southern part of the country sided with the United Nations, primarily the United States. A handful of years after, the war, uh, a handful of years after World War II uh, finished, the Korean War started in 1950. And after three years, the fighting stopped with an armistice between the North and the South. And it was in this post-Korean War era that the Seventh-day Adventist Church provided education to a country that was rebuilding. Now, back in the mid-1950s, uh, the government wasn't able to provide uh, education to all of the countries' side of Korea. Well, that wasn't a great sentence. The government was wasn't able to provide education for everybody in Korea, especially to those who lived in rural areas. The nearest public school to my dad's town was six kilometers away. So you can imagine as a sixth grader walking six kilometers to get to school. It was just not an ideal situation. So seeing the need for education, the Adventist church started a middle school and a high school right in my dad's town and in several other towns as well. So both of my parents, they attended this uh, school, uh, which is how they met and became Seventh-day Adventists as well. So some interesting stats. As a result of the missionary efforts in Korea, there was rapid growth between 1954 and 1965. So in 1954, in South Korea, there were 6,153 Adventists in 50 churches 
and there are over 15,000 individuals in Sabbath schools. Try and picture this a moment. There were over three times as many people in Sabbath school as there were baptized Adventists. Isn't that a crazy number? Well, if you fast forward 11 years, there are 28,116 people that were baptized Seventh-day Adventists in 216 churches, and there were over 100,000 individuals that were, were recorded in Sabbath school. Well, as an adult... My dad, for many years, tried to reach out and convert his family. He asked his siblings and his mother to attend church every chance he had. One year, my dad visited Korea, and he convinced his mom and his sister to attend church with him. And to his delight, they agreed to go with him. Well, the good news is that they had a pleasant experience meeting friendly people in the church, and it was that first experience that really provided community to my grandmother and my auntie. Later on, my dad introduced his mother and his sister to the pastor, who gave them Bible studies, and these two ladies ended up getting baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church. Well, one day, my dad was chatting with his mother, and they were talking about death. She was getting on in years, and she was just sharing with him what was on her heart and she was saying you know son one day i'm gonna die and i just cannot wait to go to heaven and my dad sat there and he was like hey mom you know what the bible says about death right like when you die you just die it's kind of like it's like it's like a sleep my grandmother turned to my dad and said when you die you can go wherever you want but me i'm going to heaven You know, at that point, my dad was just glad that his mom was enjoying church, and he wisely decided to just move on from that conversation. William Blake, an 18th century painter and poet, wrote a poem entitled The Doors of Perception. And here's a short excerpt. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow narrow chinks of his cavern. So Blake is saying here that when one who is deep in a cave or a cavern looks out of the opening, they don't see things as they are. They only get a narrow view of the world. But as that person moves closer to the entrance and begins to peer out of the cave, they can see just how big the world really is. Now, William Blake was keenly aware that religion can take an infinite God and place him in a teeny tiny little box. In Blake's day, he was seen as this secular hedonistic heretic. He was not a fan of Orthodox religion. He didn't really like, or he really didn't like the church's teachings, especially on self-denial. But when you look at his paintings, you see someone who is deeply religious. I don't think he ever abandoned his belief in Christ, but he just felt that belief in Jesus meant so much more than what the church was making it out to be. And it's it's on this point that I reference this poem. Alan Hirsch is one of Australia's most respected specialists in mission. Actually, he's respected around the world. And he references Blake's poem and says, there are moments when society gives us windows into their heart. And if we can see just how big God is, and if we can gain a glimpse of how infinite God is, we'd be able to connect society to the bigness of God 
and people would find out that the yearnings of their heart are actually fulfilled in God. So sure, my grandmother, she didn't end up accepting the biblical teaching of the state of the dead. But because my dad understood the bigness of God, he didn't get caught up in the details of doctrine, and he successfully led his mother and his sister to Christ. So full disclosure, uh, William Blake, uh, his poem went on to inspire secular writers and philosophers and even musicians that took this concept in a totally different direction. Uh, there was an English writer and philosopher by the name of Aldous Huxley, and in the 50s he wrote a memoir called The Doors of Perception, which you can guess where that name came from. And basically he was on psychedelics and he just kind of kept track of what that was like. Huxley's work inspired the rock band The Doors, and if you're familiar with um, the, the 60s rock band The Doors, uh, you'd be familiar with Jim Morrison, who sadly at the age of 27 um, died most likely from an overdose. And I'm just sharing this in case anybody Googles William Blake and explores the internet and wonders why on earth Pastor Roy is preaching on this craziness. I just wanted to share that the original poem was meant for something else and it was taken in a different direction. So just in case anybody does some additional research. Now, when you think of the word mission or evangelism, what do you think of? What does it mean to engage actively in mission and evangelism? Now, your definition of these terms are important because they will determine whether or not you engage actively in mission and evangelism. If mission primarily consists of giving Bible studies to someone and leading them to baptism, you might think to yourself, mission is not for me. But today I want to suggest that as we draw closer to the opening of the cave, as we draw near to God, the definition of what it means to witness will broaden. And so today I want to share a couple examples in Scripture that allow us to broaden our definition of mission. The first example is found in Mark chapter 8. And in this example, we find that the way we personally live is more important to God than us proclaiming the name of Christ. I realize that's a heavy statement, but let's explore this passage. So Mark chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. So Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says to him, you are the Christ. And it's Jesus' response that is particularly interesting to me. Because Jesus says, don't tell anybody about me. Now, if you think to yourself, what was the purpose of Jesus' incarnation and his life? What was it about? Was it not to tell people, I am the Son of God, and that by believing on my name, you can have eternal life? In my mind, that's the whole purpose of his mission. And yet here, to his closest followers, the, leaders, his, the future leaders of, Christi, of the Christian movement, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. What is it that Jesus wants? Uh, what, yeah, what is it that Jesus wants? We continue on in Mark chapter 8, reading from verse 31. Jesus begins to teach his disciples, and I'm just going to narrate as you read the passage, starting from verse 31. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to be rejected by all the people that you respect. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. But after three days, I will come back to life. 
See, Jesus wanted the disciples to first understand the nature of his mission before they witnessed of his divinity. And Peter really struggles with him, and he says, Jesus, no, 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 this this isn't going to happen to you. And Jesus gives potentially the harshest rebuke in all of Scripture, where he looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you don't savor the things of God, but you savor the things of man. If the disciples of Jesus are not ready to witness out of a lack of understanding of the nature of the mission of God, how would Jesus then prepare them? We continue reading in verse 34. Jesus calls all those who are present to come near him, and he begins to teach them. If you want to follow me, if you want me and my power and my presence in your life, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and live for me. See, Jesus wanted the disciples to know, and just continue on to read if you look from verse 35 onwards. If we try to live for ourselves and for our gain and for our comfort, if we try to preserve our lives, we will not find life. But if we live for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel, if we live our lives putting God first, prioritizing the teachings of Jesus and his mission, we would find a quality of life that surpasses anything this world could offer. In this circumstance, living out the teachings of Jesus took precedence over witnessing for Jesus. See, there's a phase in our walk with God where living out the words of Jesus is the mission. Whether at work or at home, and for me, when I drive, I don't know if you can relate to that, but the mission is living out the teachings of Jesus. And my point is that you don't have to say a single word about God or your belief in God, but you are called to embody the words of Christ. If we live primarily for ourselves, people can tell. But if we live primarily for others, and more importantly, if we live primarily for another, capital A, our lives will breathe life into the space that we occupy. My friend Fraser Catton, uh, many of you know him because he's been a guest speaker at our church uh, a couple times over the, over the past number of years. His kidneys started to fail <clears throat> a few years ago and rapidly deteriorated. Over the course of the pandemic, he faced almost total kidney failure and had to be put on dialysis. Now, for those of you who don't know Fraser, Fraser is my age. He has a wife and three amazing daughters. And he had to have these uncomfortable conversations with his girls who are primary school students telling them, hey girls, daddy is dying right now and I may not make it out of this. <clears throat> now Fraser began posting updates on how things were going and I know sometimes social media posts can be awkward but his posts were quite different in nature. They were quite thoughtful. Fraser's primary, pur primary purpose was just to inform his friends his family members, and his church of what was going on. Because you can imagine, you have renal failure, and every single person asks you over and over and over again, how are you doing? What's going on? And so there was a very practical purpose to these social media posts. And so literally hundreds of thousands of people were getting updates and being able to understand what was going on in Fraser's life. <clears throat> now, each time in his posts, he would say, whether there's a miracle or not, God's got this. Whether there's a miracle or not, God's got this. 
you know, in my chats with him, I would call him to show support. But the reality was in our conversations, he would always end up giving me hope and peace. If you can imagine our conversations, I'd call him, hey, man, how are you doing? Like, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. And he would just say, Roy, it's okay. God's got this. And then I would end up hanging up the phone going, yeah, okay, that's good. <laughs> it's like I, I'm the one that needs encouragement as I'm calling this person who's about to die. There's a kidney transplant network in Australia and New Zealand, and Fraser was able to find a match within three months of finding out that his kidneys were about to have complete failure. And today he's got a healthy kidney that's giving him life. Fraser shared his testimony uh, last weekend at the minister's retreat, and at the end he shared that he had to learn that his kidney failure was not about him. He said, On one hand, realizing I'm not at the center of my illness was terrifying because I want to be in control. But on the other hand, letting go gave me peace because when I let go, I could watch God work. He shared with me that going through kidney failure put him in contact with other people who were in the same situation and journeying through that gave him the opportunity to bring encouragement to their lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You see, people get a picture of what God is like as they see the way we live our lives. And living for Jesus is incredibly missional. The second example that I want to share with you about what it means to broaden our definition of living missionally is found in Romans chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Now Paul says in verse 13 that what we do is important. Now, if you read the word specifically, it says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, think about that phrase. The doers of the law will be justified. Now, when you normally think of that phrase, justified, I realize it's a very theological term, but how are we justified? By what? Any takers? Starts with F. By faith. We are justified by faith. But if you look at what Paul says here in Romans 2, he says, those who do the law are justified. In other words, you are justified by your works. Is that not completely contradictory to everything that we hold to dear, uh, hold dear to as, as, Pro- as a Protestant denomination? Think about what that means. So we keep reading verse 14 and 15, and Paul will begin to explain himself. In verse 14 and 15, Paul writes, When the Gentiles or those who do not believe, who don't have the law or the truth, by nature obey the law, they show that they are good. In other words, the law is written on their hearts. In other words, there are people who don't know God. They are not familiar with scripture or the love of God, but they have been transformed in the likeness of God. And verse 16 says, they are judged accordingly. 
Now, it's easy, it's easy to read the Bible and think only believers in Jesus will be saved. But Paul paints a different picture of judgment. He says there are people outside of the truth whom God considers righteous. Now, this may come as a shock, but God is going to save Buddhists. He's going to save Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs and Jews and people who are even without religion. They may have never spoken the name of the Holy Spirit, but they did respond to him. And the moments when God spoke to their hearts, asking them to respond to goodness, when they say yes, in judgment God says, that counts and you belong to me. See, our understanding of Jesus' sacrifice, it's supposed to draw us by the goodness of God. And that goodness then transforms our lives. So many people, they're not going to understand or care about justification. They're not going to understand theology. But they will respond to goodness and their hearts would have been transformed. And Paul says that counts in judgment. Now you may then ask the question, why do I need to believe in God at all then? Why become a Christian? Why even become a Seventh-day Adventist? And Paul asks the very same question in the next chapter. So he concludes his thoughts in Romans 2, and in the very next chapter, he asks the question, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? One could rewrite this and say, what's the point of being a Seventh-day Adventist? And in verse 2, he answers his question, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. In other words, you have an advantage because you have the truth. The teachings, the doctrines, the lifestyle that is promoted has inherent value. And when lived out, a different quality of life is experienced. So how do we apply this concept to mission? We don't have to get people to subscribe to a specific denomination or institution to get people to encounter God. God is secure enough to save people when we don't believe in him. So for those who are open to God, of course I want to introduce them to God. Of course I want people to become Seventh-day Adventists because I believe it has inherent value. But God will also take goodness that is developed in people, and that goodness can be developed outside of these walls. And that's why ministries like ADRA are important, because we can engage people in community service when they wouldn't be engaged in worship service. That's why church socials are important. That's why having dinners in your home are important because you can engage and rub, uh, rub, you can inspire goodness in other people's lives. And that counts in eternity. There's a man by the name of David R. Williams. <clears throat> He's a Seventh-day Adventist sociologist. He is also the director of public health at Harvard University. I personally think he's one of the most effective missionaries of our church. His research is helping healthcare system understand and effectively address inequality in healthcare. I wanted to show a picture of David Williams, but I couldn't find a legal picture, and I thought, I don't know, Harvard is kind of a pretty big institution. I'm not really sure if I want to risk risk putting a picture of Harvard up on on, on this presentation, so I didn't. Well, in, in 2016, David Williams gave a TED Talk on how racism makes us sick. And that talk has over 1.8 million views, 
And at the end of his talk, he cites different initiatives that are creating change in healthcare for African Americans. He shares how in Huntsville, Alabama, at Oakwood University, a historically black institution, the university is improving the health of black adults by including a health evaluation to incoming students along with tools they need to make healthy choices. In addition to this, the school provides them with an annual health transcript so the students can monitor their progress as the years go by. Now, if anyone who is watching the TED Talk became curious about this initiative, some research would lead them to Oakwood University, which is a Seventh-day Adventist institution. Now, there are two notable points that stick out to me about David Williams or Dr. Williams' witness. One, addressing equality is something that most people believe in. And by encouraging systems to uphold equality and do good, Dr. Williams is drawing people closer to God. And in judgment, that's going to count to those who respond. If there's a hospital administrator who looks at the research that Dr. Williams is producing and saying, yes, we do, um, th there are systemic issues of equality in our healthcare system. We need to make changes. That's going to make a difference, not only in that administrator's lives, but the hundreds of doctors who then begin to educate themselves and make adjustments to the way that they provide healthcare. See, Dr. Williams is not overtly trying to convert anyone, but his work with the church is such a natural part of his life that people who would never have contact with Adventism have become very familiar with the church. It's really interesting because there's now published research that, uh, excuse me, public, published research through the Harvard uh, School of Public Health, and you can see the names of these students, these doctoral students, who are not Adventists, who are actually actively engaged in this research. Here they are rubbing shoulders with this Christian professor, learning about how these principles of equality are being implemented in these Adventist institutions. It's kind of an incredible thing to see. When our normal lives are intertwined with the ministry of the church, those around us will have contact with the church, and you just never know what can happen as a result. So today I want to challenge you to do a couple things. <clears throat> I want to challenge you to pray and ask God, God, what truth do you want me to respond to for the sake of others and for your name's sake? Make a note of that and be intentional about living it out in your life. Two, ask God, is there someone that you want me to encourage to goodness? Maybe there's someone at work. Maybe there's a friend. Maybe there's a family member. Maybe there's a circumstance at work where you feel compelled to encourage and to influence decisions that lead to a more moral and ethical policy or decision-making. Those decisions make a difference in the context of eternity. For the rest of the series, Jinha and I are going to continue to journey through the Bible and share what it means to be a participant in God's mission. And I hope that as we journey through this series that you can gain a clearer picture and feel inspired and, and sense the Spirit of God calling you to engage actively in God's mission. Over the next few months, we as a church are going to be um, strategizing how uh, we're, we're going to be developing a strategy of mission. How do we as a church become more missional? And I hope that we can gain feedback from you. We would love to hear from you. And of course, we hope that there's going to be something in this strategy where you feel that you can contribute. 
And by God's grace, may you be able to see people in your lives be led to the kingdom of God as a result. May God bless you. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Father God, I just want to thank you for your word. And as we encounter you, as we think about uh, this challenge to put you at the center of our lives, to live out your mission, to be intentional about uh, living out your word and encouraging other people to goodness, I just want to ask that um, you would work in our lives, Father. May we experience you at the center of our lives. May we experience your work and your power as we engage in your will. And so, Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. And, um, yeah, we just pray that you would use this church to be a lighthouse to this community, that you would you would use us as uh, Christians to be a light um, to the people that are in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.